so many episode 970, Julie Hansen, US CEO of Babbel, the top grossing language learning app in the world. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I actually do remember one time, um, you know, in high school, I had a few jobs. I was a lifeguard. I did some babysitting, things like that. And, uh, you know, mom made sure that a certain amount of that went into the savings account. And I remember one day going with her to the bank and checking out the savings account and being floored that I had, you know, over a thousand dollars in there. Um, and that's when it really clicked for me. Like, Oh, if you keep doing that, it adds up. That thing works. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. You just heard from Julie Hansen talking about growing up and her earliest money lessons. Fast forward to today, she is the US CEO of Babbel. You familiar with Babbel? Maybe you're learning a language right now, you're using the app. It is the top grossing language learning app in the world. And Julie's going to tell us all about how it's helping people learn languages, learn how to have conversations in a foreign language within hours using the app. Julie knows how to build companies. And in fact, years ago, she took a small little known online publication with just a handful of employees and within eight years turned it into Business Insider, a site that is now a household name. She's helped build well-known websites like NCAA.com, NewYorker.com, Teen Vogue, and the number one website for golfers at Time Inc. And I'm happy to welcome her now to our show. Here's Julie Hansen. Julie Hansen, welcome to So Money. Thanks, glad to be here. You are the U.S. CEO of Babbel. Many of us know Babbel. It's the top grossing language learning app in the world. Got to start with that because there's such an appetite right now, right, for learning languages. We live in a mobile world. People can travel now to places faster and quickly. And and the, the desire to learn languages, the ease to learn languages has uh, really is, has accelerated. And do you think Babbel has contributed to that? Well, I hope so. I mean, we certainly are benefiting from it. Um, the, the, it's funny the, the company is about 12 years old and it was created at that time because incredibly one of the founders wanted to learn Spanish and found that there was no way to do that on the internet. And you think about the internet 12 years ago, it was already a pretty big place and you, you felt like everything was there and yet there was no opportunity to learn a language online. Uh, there were packaged softwares and there were books, things like that, but there wasn't an online solution. So that's how Babbel was born. And um, it's, you know, since that time we have millions of subscribers and um, we do teach 14 different languages. Although if you break it down, like probably most of our peers, we teach a whole lot of English and a whole lot of Spanish. Mm, yeah, but also Indonesian. <laughs> yes. It's, I think it's really interesting that over almost three-fourths of Babbel learners admit that they could have a basic conversation in their new language after just five hours of using the app, a basic conversation after just five hours. What is the? What are you guys doing that like my French teacher could never do? <laughs> well... We do hope to make it fun. That's a part of it. Um, you know, five hours breaks down to a, a pretty good 
time span. You know, our recommendation is that you don't binge learn so much as do 15 minutes a day. And you know, maybe that discipline of the daily use is what we did not, we all did not have in high school. Um, and it makes a big difference. But the other thing that we do that your, um, high school French teacher didn't do is we focus on teaching real life conversation skills. I mean, our, our, user, our learner is someone that is learning a language for their own personal reasons. They're not studying for a grade in most cases. It's a nice support to educational efforts, but really it's for you. So um, that motivation, I think, is a, a key factor, um, but also the way that an app lets you do this. We send you a daily reminder, in fact, if you haven't kind of logged on at the right time to do that. And that repetition is really powerful. But, you know, we don't, you know, we teach grammar in a kind of gradual way. Um, we don't focus on that as a starting point. We really know that you have you want to learn the language so you can speak it. So we focus on making that possible for you. You come to Babbel from a extensive career history in media as Prior to Babel, you were at Business Insider as president and COO. You have had high top management roles at places like CBS and Time Inc. and Condé Nast. And I and you were at Penguin Group, where I read that you registered the domain penguin.com in 1995. You had the foresight. <laughs> you saw where the world was going. You're like, we got to buy this domain. How much did that cost, by the way? It was dirt cheap. I think it was probably $10. because Oh, was no. Which is funny because at the time it shows as well how naive I was about marketing because, of course, the correct domain to buy, which they now have, is penguinbooks.com. That's the name of the company. But, um, you know, everyone internally called it Penguin, so that's what I registered. And in retrospect, they probably could have sold that for some money back in the heyday of domains. Um, well. I, I mean, work. in the grand scheme of it, you've gone on to do some pretty have a lot of heavy lifting for a lot of important companies um, in the realm of marketing, and maybe that was like, okay, I'll let you have that hiccup. But you know, you have um, brought companies to massive profitability, and really because you you know how to leverage online marketing, and you probably saw it before a lot of others. Um, saw it. And what I find really interesting is that you've transitioned industries, you know, all this media and now working for Babbel, which is, um, maybe you would characterize it as media, but I'd love to learn about how you made that transition. For a lot of people listening to the show, you know, we all have core fundamental specialties, expertise, and we kind of think that, you know, maybe we're pigeonholed to a particular industry. How do you make that that leap? And, and what are you taking with you from media that you're bringing now to Babbel? Yeah, it's a great question. I, there was a little bit of lucky timing involved. But the connection for me was the fact that, um, first of all, the Babbel product was something I knew and loved and really believed in the mission of everyone learning languages. But more important, it was a content-based piece of software. In other words, the interactivity of the software is, is the core of what makes it work, but there's a whole lot of teaching content that goes in there. And in fact, we have a team of over 100 language experts, linguists who create that content. And there's a lot of similarity between that and what a media company does. Um, so that felt comfortable and familiar to me. And I felt like I know how to sell that kind of product. Um, and then secondly, you know, I spent my career, a large part of it selling advertising 
And in a funny way, all I'm doing is walking over to the other side of the table and buying advertising um, because it's the same discipline of marketing. I'm just approaching it from a different perspective. So while it looks very different on the surface, there actually are a lot of similarities between Babbel and a media company, um, with the exception that we're not ad supported. In fact, we use marketing and advertising to drive our, our growth, but we're not selling ads. And we, we do think that's important in our product. There's no barrier between the consumer and the learning that ads can create in an educational product. What drew you to business? You have your MBA from Columbia, but prior to that, you studied English um, at Yale. So something happened between English and MBA that I'm really curious about. What was the, the process or the journey there? Well, from English to publishing is a fairly natural progression. But what happened pretty quickly was that I learned I am not so much an editor. I'm definitely not a writer. Uh, but I liked the business side of it. In fact, I'm forever grateful to uh a rather famous editor who is now at Simon & Schuster called Nan Graham, who is a, fam was a friend of a friend. And Nan met me when I was in my senior year of college. And I was telling her of my dream to be a book editor. And she spent some time with me and said, no, you should work on the business side. <laughs> <laughs> no offense. <laughs> <laughs> and she was right. And I was super grateful for that. Um, so but yes, as I went along, um, the more I understood the business side, the more I uh, enjoyed it and wanted to double down on that. In fact, one of the first classes I took after college, I think two or three years out of college, was an accounting class because I just felt like I couldn't understand what they were saying and it was necessary to me. So I guess I had to recover from all those years of studying studying English and do something more practical. I think that chapter in your book could be called Thanks, Nan. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Nan. Thanks for seeing something in me that I hadn't yet. I'm curious, you know, you have done such incredible work bringing companies to profitability and how has that maybe translated in your personal life? Is this something that is also a strength in your personal financial life? Well, I guess there are some parallels to how we ran Business Insider and how uh, I run my personal financial life. We were, especially relative to other startups, relatively careful about our spending, um, kind of proud of the fact that we never went out and went on a crazy hiring binge and then had to lay off lots of people the next year. You know, we, we always grew with the notion that we wanted to hire and grow responsibly. We, um, we had a nice enough office, but we never had fish tanks and basketball courts and all those kinds of crazy things that startups do here in New York and especially in the Valley. Um, so that's probably true in my personal life too. I was, um, joking with someone today about my 12-year-old Volvo station wagon uh, and the fact that, of course, I still drive it. It's a great car. Why would I get rid of that? Uh, so there are definitely some some parallels between uh, personal finance and business. Uh, that said, you, you certainly can't confuse the two. Um, you have to take different risks in business than you would take at home. And I think we've had, we had a good track record at Business Insider of taking good risks. Yeah, Business Insider is such a fascinating case study. I contribute there and I know Henry Blodgett and I think there were a lot of headwinds when it first started, like, oh, just another media company. Good luck with that. Um, and it was sort of this sleeper success. 
at least from my perspective, and now I think it's getting the credit that it that it has been due for many years as from a like sort of, you know, recognition and people really like, oh yeah, Business Insider. They've been around for so long and I didn't they just sell themselves for like lots and lots and lots of money? Yeah, that was an incredible journey. I feel so lucky to have been there early on. I was employee number five and Whoa. And to have worked with Henry, who's, I mean, that was a privilege and an honor. He's an exceptional talent and just a great person. And we did, it was a slow build over the course of the nine, 10 years. Um, You know, I remember so distinctly early on when we crossed the million monthly uh, user threshold and thinking, wow, we've really arrived. Like, you know, this thing has legs. Um, And by the time I left, we were receiving over 60 million monthly unique visits. So it really took off. Um, yeah. And it, it did, we did have to invent both a company and a media as we went along. You know, when you think about it, digital media is still in its infancy in so many ways, the format of the media itself, the format of the advertising, both are still very much, uh, even the, the business models all of these are very much still in a developmental phase. And it was thrilling to be part of that. Um, also scary on some days, but it worked out. And it did. I mean, I, as a contributor to Business Insider, I can say that compared to other places I contribute, the exposure and the feedback that I get from readers is, is unparalleled. I mean, people really do read Business Insider. It's not just, you know, um, just click and leave. People sit there and they read and they they devour it. So congrats and kudos to you and your old team. A few more personal finance questions, Julie. Um, I'd love to ask guests about even going back further, you know, to childhood and really capturing the the essence of your financial education growing up. If there was a moment or an experience that really stands out for you that might explain how you, why you are the person you are and from a financial perspective, is, is, is there a story like that? Does it exist? <laughs> well, definitely a mom story. Um, I owe great thanks to my mom for teaching me savings, like how that works. And I actually do remember one time, um, you know, in high school, I had a few jobs. I was a lifeguard. I did some babysitting, things like that. And, uh, you know, mom made sure that a certain amount of that went into the savings account. And I remember one day going with her to the bank and checking out the savings account and being floored that I had, you know, over a thousand dollars in there. Um, and that's when it really clicked for me. Like, Oh, if you keep doing that, it adds up, that thing works. So thanks mom for that. Um, you know, I was super lucky early in my career to work at a large media company that happened to get sold to another large media company back in the year 2000. And you remember that was quite a a frothy time in our economy. And, um, that company had a broad based stock option grant plan. And I, like many other employees had a very modest number of shares and I didn't think much about them, but you know, still you were aware you had these shares. They were mostly underwater and the company sold at a hundred percent premium relative to its stock price. So if the stock price was 45 bucks, it sold for $90 a share. And so suddenly all of the shares were in the money. And that's when it really clicked for me that, you know what, stock options can go to zero and that happens maybe more often than not. But on the other hand, 
if you're in the right place at the right time and you work hard and you get a little bit lucky, you know, stock options can be the most important form of compensation you have. So I think that experience really is part of what gave me the courage to go to a startup and try, um, you know, taking a much greater risk because I saw that it can pay off. Yeah, I guess don't put all your eggs in the stock option basket. (laughs) These days, I mean, my husband's uh, you know, he get he's in tech and um, he's really attracted to the startup phase. He likes working for startups. Um, and sometimes they dangle the whole like equity carrot, but it's like, okay, we have a family and we need a 401k and we need, we need benefits. And it, you know, there's, it's definitely a, uh, a give and take, but um, I think it, the prudent thing would be to not, I mean, Hey, maybe from 21 and I have, you know, I, then I, whatever. I have more risk tolerance, but um, it's definitely something to be much more thoughtful about these days because we know, now we know what can happen. Oh, that's certainly true. And I was able to go to a startup at a point where um, I had, my husband had a good job and he had the benefits. So, you know, I didn't have that worry of, wow, I won't have insurance. Uh, But I, I was very aware it was a risk. Changing gears a little bit from risk to uh, gratitude. Um, it's November. This episode's airing in November, and I've done some research, some some positive research. I have found that gratitude and appreciating your kind of like riches and your financial life can lead to more wealth. Um, the studies, the surveys show, and so it's that's one more reason to you know be thankful and be grateful. And some people like to keep a gratitude journal. So, what is one thing in your financial life that you're especially grateful this year, Julie? This is a question that we're doing in partnership with our sponsor Chase. We're asking guests to identify something that they're just really grateful for in their financial life this year. It's hard not to be a little bit grateful for the stock market this year. <laughs> <laughs> working pretty well at the moment still, which is an amazing... Despite a lot of the downturns recently, right? Some of the scares we had. For sure. And it is long in the tooth, but we're grateful that this year has worked out, knock on wood, so far pretty good. The um, one thing that I'm really um, grateful that um, I was sort of prompted to do and and was grateful to remember that this that this program exists, meaning the 529 program, I'm a huge fan of, I've always participated, but this is the year that I paid some more attention to it and realized, you know, we weren't maximizing our contributions and we do have kids coming up to college age. We need to get serious about that. So I'm grateful for the program in general. I think it's one of the better programs that we have uh, here in the States. And then grateful that I got my act together and started to maximize the contributions so that we're ready for college because it really does make a difference when the way it accumulates uh, tax-free. Yes. And are you in the New York plan? Yes. Yeah. So we know the New York plan for New York residents. Um, You also get the state tax deduction, which is nice. It's true. All right. A little education on 529 plans too with Julie Babel, with Julie from Babel. I I didn't uh, think we would go there, but I like it. (laughs) And so before we wrap, what's a financial habit that you're practicing? Is a daily thing that you do or a recurring thing that you do that's a practice or a habit? One thing we try to do on a a frequent or at least recurring basis is look at those expenses that are on autopilot that really add up. 
Like I love to question whether we really need all of those cable TV channels that um, hit our bill on a monthly basis. Um, and, uh, you know, do we really have to spend quite so much on our cell phone bill? And we just try to make sure that the recurring charges don't aren't delivering value to us, but they're things we really use and need. Uh, and it gets into some in interesting discussions about the true value of a, of a TV station. But um, nonetheless, it's I think it's easy to let those charges sort of sit there on your credit card and they add up. Do we have to have Apple Music and Spotify? Things like that. Um, and I think I know there are some out there. None of them have really hit the big time. But someone has to figure out an awesome like global subscription management platform that makes it easier for consumers to manage all of these subscriptions and keep track of them and you know turn them on and off, pause them, that kind of thing. Um, I would totally use a platform like that if I found one. And what you're telling me reminds me of another tidbit that a guest once shared about every year taking your budget to ground zero. Because you're right, we take on these expenses. A lot of them are subscriptions or they're recurring bills because in the moment it made sense. But life goes on, your life adjusts, maybe your your tastes change, and you realize like, okay, this thing that I hired that that I adopted nine months ago is really not necessary or not really a, a as I say, a need want anymore. So kill it. And it's a recurring charge. And I would also suggest in that exercise to go to all of your insurance providers, um, talking like home insurance, car insurance, and seeing if you can get better rates. All right, Julie. Okay. I said that was going to be the last thing, but we're going to do a round robin where I'm just going to ask you to fill in the blank. Are you, are you down? We have about five more minutes. So I thought this would be fun. I'll just start a sentence and then you finish it. Ready. If I won the lottery tomorrow, the first thing I would do is pay off student debts. Like Really? Wait, you have you have student loans? No, no, like that. I'm assuming I'm winning billions. Oh, you're going to help other people pay off their student debts. I thought that story of the <gasps> yeah. billionaire who paid off an entire class student loan was just so fantastic. I would love to do that. Oh my gosh. Oh, I know. I mean, I wish I was in that audience. I think it was at Howard University. Howard University. And it must have been transformative for those kids. You know, you thought you were, you were going to face decades of dealing with this burden and suddenly you're given this gift and it's all good. I mean, I bet it was so empowering. I think that's an incredible story. I would love to do that. What a legacy too, to leave. <gasps> Amazing. All right. How about this? One thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better or both is? Mm, coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're not supposed to. Yeah, no, no. On this show, I'm all for the coffee. I'm all for the little indulgences because we work hard. We need to be able to, you know, enjoy the day to day. For sure. In college, I worked in a coffee shop, like a real one before that was a thing. Um, and I pretty quickly realized that it's nice that you can get a coffee in the cart on the corner in New York City, but that just does not suffice. You need a real coffee. Yeah. Unless you're the coffee cart on Wall Street, uh, <laughs> which withstood the test of time during the oh, recession. Yeah. Do you remember that one? It's called the Good Morning America cart. The guys are still in there. They're two brothers. I, I've interviewed them. They had a coffee, they have a coffee cart right across from what wasn't 
a Starbucks. So they had a lot of challenges, right? Because they got people that are just going to the Starbucks. During the recession, Starbucks on Wall Street closed and they stayed in business, these two guys, these two brothers. So, I mean, crazier things have happened. That's awesome. And by the way, that's not the easiest job. It gets cold in there and hot. Oh, they're that's such that. hard workers. They were it's supporting them. like all of their immigrant family. I think there were about nine of them from Afghanistan in one wow. house. They, and then one of the brothers, after he was done at like 11 a.m. serving coffee and bagels, would go and be a personal trainer. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I would just at that point, <laughs> I would need to get someone to carry me home. Uh, but he, he, they're, they're, they're not built like me. I guess that's the moral of the story. Um, okay. One thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is the notion of sunk costs. You know, I had to go to business school to learn that one. But the idea that, like, I mean, it's the same thing as don't throw good money after bad. And somehow I didn't fully understand what that meant when you go to business school and you're taught like at every stage you need to keep evaluating further investment. Don't worry about the fact that you've already invested. That's a sunk cost. The investment starts afresh at each um, evaluation point. That was, it took a while to sink in for me, but that's a really powerful lesson in your personal life, in your business life. It applies. I like that. I have not heard that on the show before. So sunk costs and how it attrib- how it applies to your personal finances as well. And last but not least, I'm Julie Hansen and I'm so money because... <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad the reaction is laughter. Some people just look at me like a deer in headlights and I apologize, but hopefully you get it, right? Just fill in the blank. I'm so money because... I've been so lucky. (laughs) Been so lucky. You've been such a hard worker. Let's give credit for all your insights and foresights and your dedication. And um, I want to make sure everybody who wants to learn a language trusts that Babbel is the place to learn it. So check out Babbel.com. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Julie, thank you so much. Awesome, Farnoosh. Thanks for having me. Take care. To connect with Julie on Twitter, she's at Julie underscore Hansen and check out Babbel.com. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. And I hope to see you back here on Friday. In the meantime, I hope your day is so money. (laughs) 